It's good to be with you. It was 50 years ago this year that I became a Virginian, and some of my early memories of those first years were uh, the hymns thing that you had here and coming across from Powhatan County on several occasions. And through the years, our paths have crossed a few times, and uh, your meeting house keeps expanding, and your congregation keeps expanding, and your facilities back here keep expanding. So it's good to be back with you. What I want to do these sessions is talk a bit about what it means to be a Christian uh, following Christ in uncertain times. I want to look primarily at the Virginia Mennonites and the Civil War in this relationship. And I also uh, will look at the larger Mennonite picture the larger picture. This is not just a historical lecture. And so uh, be thinking what lessons we can learn. And maybe that session uh, Sunday afternoon after when everyone's sleepy from their fellowship meal, maybe we can share together a bit of what are some things that, uh, le lessons that we can learn uh, from, from what people went through uh, during this time. I want to... Uh, tell the story as honestly as I can. And sometimes there are some warts, some things that we wonder, why did people do things that way? And so I don't plan to whitewash the sepulchers of the forefathers. Uh, some of the books that have come out on the Civil War uh, pretty well glorify our forefathers. And that's not entirely correct because there's some things that we look back and we say, you know, why did they do it that way? And if the Lord tarries, maybe sometime people will look back on us and say, why did they do things that way? And so let's be open to what God has, has for us. By way of introduction, I'd like you to go to the book of Joshua. Joshua 4. When Israel crossed the Jordan... God gave them some specific commands to help them remember what he had done there. The people of Israel had three major events in their history that they remembered. One of them was the Passover, and they remembered the Passover from um, remembered the Passover by, by keeping that year by year, a memorial feast. They always looked back to the crossing of the Red Sea. And we're not sure how all they remember that except through stories. They also, the women had a song that they composed and they sang that song. But when they crossed over the Jordan River, they were instructed to take stones from the Jordan River and pile them up. A careful reading seems to indicate there were two piles of stones, one in the Jordan River and one on the other side when they made their first camp after they left the uh, crossing of the Jordan River. Joshua 4, verse 19. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. 
And those ten stones which they took up out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea when he dried up before us until we had crossed over. And all the people of the earth shall know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. A pile of stones to raise questions. So when the children saw that pile of stones, they would ask, what does it mean? And then the parents were to tell the stories of what had happened. It doesn't take very long until the things that are common to us as adults are ancient history to children. And so the story needed to be told and retold. But it was not just a dry rehashing of facts. It was to be a living faith. And a faith that was to be shared so that all the peoples of the earth would know that the hand of the Lord was mighty. Piles of stones, lots of stories, and a living faith. And I think that's an important thing for us as we look back in in church history. We don't have a lot of stones. As far as we as Mennonite people, we're not big on statues and so forth. Um, Our society around us has lots of stones. Every battlefield you go to is monument after monument after monument. But there's no monument, well, I know of one, to a brother and elder, but there are very, very few stones in memory of the people of God and their faithfulness. But there are lots and lots of stories, lots of stories. And those stories we need to know, we need to pass them on to the next generation as an expression of a living faith, as an expression of a living faith. That's what Joshua asked the people. And so I want to, in these uh, talks, uh, tell the story of the Mennonite people during the Civil War, emphasizing primarily what happened in Virginia, although I want to mention what happened in Pennsylvania and in the West a bit. And I can't just stick completely to the Mennonite story because the Amish story comes in, the Quaker story comes in, and the Church of the Brethren story comes in. But I want to focus primarily on our Mennonite people. So why should we look back to stories of over 150 years ago? Are there lessons for us today? I trust that uh, this time will give us an appreciation for what a small group of Christians faced Uh, when they were called to take up weapons against their fellow men, when they were called to go to war with someone who was called the enemy. And this story is part of a, a larger story which has been analyzed and written about more than any other part of American history. 
the American Civil War has been written about more than any other aspect of history. And so our story is a tiny segment of a larger story. It's the story of Mennonites and Amish, both in the north and the south, who said no when their government called them to war. And how and why did they react that way? Primarily because they were followers of Christ. After the Civil War, the Virginia Mennonites had a chance to reclaim money for things that had been stolen from them. But time and time again, the government turned down their claims and said, you were really not uh, persecuted because you were for the Union. It's because you did these things because you followed your religion. And we're only handing out money to people who were pro-Union. And so the people did not get the money that they thought was rightfully theirs because they were committed to Christ. First, some background. American Civil War, 1861-1865. What was the legacy? Over a half million men were killed. That was nearly as many as were killed in all the other American wars combined. In the South, one out of every five men of military age died. In the North, one out of every 16. They had more people in the North. But probably everyone knew someone who had died. And that's kind of unique in American history. Beside over that half million, there were 500,000 soldiers that were wounded in fighting. Tens of thousands were missing of arms and legs. Many of them lived into the 20th century, probably the old corner stores where people sat around in front of the stores and played checkers and whatever men did at the country stores in the old days, were full of veterans, armless, legless, old men who told the stories in the south of the lost cause, but men who told stories clear into the 20th century. Some of them were in their 70s when World War I began. Incidentally, the last legitimate veteran died in 1959. He had been a little drummer boy during the war. And when I say the war, we Southerners know that that's Civil War. Okay, so um, the last veteran died in 1959. I was 11 years old. The last widow of a Confederate soldier died seven years ago. Do the math. She was 18, he was 86 or something like that. I don't know if it was a a marriage of love or because she wanted to collect his pension. (laughs) I'm not sure which. But uh, she died in 2008. She was 19, married an 86-year-old man. So that's why she died 140 years after the war ended. So these kind of things are are not as far back as we want to think. Not as far back as we want to think. Over a million people killed and maimed. Civilians who suffered death and harm. Economic costs 
In the Union, 6.1 million, inflation 80%. In the Confederacy, the Confederacy was crippled. When we moved to Powhatan County in 1966, in some ways, the community was just recovering from the Civil War. <coughs> Southside Virginia um, held on to memories much longer than some other places. Farms, factories, railroads were destroyed. Inflation was terrible. Inflation in the South was 9,000%. The Confederate states lost two-thirds of their wealth. The country was changed because of the Civil War. The draft was introduced both in the North and the South. And I'm finding that young people and children don't even know what the draft is. Simply the government put eligible men's names in a barrel and drew out names, and those persons had to go into the army. The draft was introduced both in the North and the South during that time. For some people, the war brought wealth. A man from Mennonite background in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, bought cattle and sold them to the Union Army and started the Lancaster Stockyards. Just drove over the railroad bridge there last weekend. It's all gone now, but at one time that was the largest stockyard east of Chicago, started by a man of Mennonite background who became wealthy. Others were left in poverty and stagnation, and slavery ended, and the reconstruction and the integration of the black population into society was a legacy of the war. Incidentally, one of those might-have-beens happened here in Lynchburg. After the war, during the Reconstruction, um, Jacob Eschbach Yoder from Pennsylvania came and taught in the, uh, the Freedmen's schools here in Lynchburg. He tossed back and forth about his Mennonite legacy and ended up joining the Baptist Church. But for many, many years, he was the superintendent of schools in five counties surrounding Lynchburg, including Campbell County. You can check in the library, I guess, in Lynchburg, and you can probably find his story. He was a well-loved man, although his coming south as a scalawag after the war was not appreciated by the white population. And his ministry was to the black population of, uh, in the public school system in five counties, uh, including Lynchburg. And so there was a legacy, a legacy that, even, that reached uh, even into to this area. <clears throat> As I mentioned, the, the Mennonite people were a very small, tiny minority in a war that was very uh, religious. A war that was very religious. And we sometimes, as, as Mennonite people, don't like those two words together. But the time that the Civil War came, the Second Great Awakening was in full force. In Chicago, D.L. Moody was on the rise with his preaching, and D.L. Moody preached in the prison camps. Although D.L. Moody always said, on the matter of war, I am a Quaker. And he refused to become involved in um, supporting the war, but he preached to whoever he could preach to. And so religious revivals spread through the Union and Confederate camps. 
Even though the church and the state were officially separate, separate, they were very much intertwined. And throughout the war, there were many, many times when there were prayer meetings, there were baptisms, there were preaching services. Thomas Jackson, known as Stonewall Jackson, the main military leader in Virginia, did not like the Yankees because they fought on Sunday. They would initiate battles on Sunday, and he thought that was desecrating the Lord's Day. Uh, he was an Old Testament warrior and a New Testament saint and tried to provide, because he was a, it was a godly man, but he never gave up the Old Testament warrior motif. Uh, very close to where I live in Rockingham County, uh, for many years was an oak tree that I pointed out to people. That's where Stonewall Jackson prayed with his men. The wind took the tree down some years ago, and local craftsmen uh, changed the wood into uh, bowls and pens and other pieces of things that you can buy for a price. But he, he led his people and his soldiers into, into prayer and to worship. And so there was a very strong emphasis, a very religious emphasis uh, during this time. But behind, the, behind it was, was a lot of division, not just division north and south, but the slavery issue that divided the churches. Over the pulpits, scripture texts were used to justify slavery. Over the pulpits, scripture texts were used to denounce slavery. The Wesleyan Methodists left the Methodist church over slavery because earlier, both Baptists and Methodists had rejected slavery, but to accommodate slave-owning members, eventually the focus shift, and potential members who had slaves were eventually accepted into the Methodist and Baptist churches. The Mennonites and Brethren people uh, did not make that compromise. One of the fascinating stories happened over here in Botetourt County, where a family in a crisis time of the loss of a child uh, became believers and made application uh, to join the Brethren Church in Botetourt County. The church said, okay, but what about your slave? And so the McClure family gave Samuel Weir, their slave, his freedom. And he was so impressed that he also became a believer and asked the church if they would baptize him. And Samuel Weir became the first black member of the Brethren Church that we know of, eventually rising to the eldership in that, in the group. He had to move to Ohio, but uh, became an elder in their church. The same thing happened in Rockingham County, a Presbyterian family coming to my home congregation, the bank congregation, Wanting to join the church there, what about your slaves? And they set their slaves free and were baptized into the congregation. Eventually, some of their former slaves also joined the church there. And so before emancipation, before 1860, we had a few black members at Bank Mennonite Church. But most of the denominations divided. Methodist Episcopal North, 
Methodist, Episcopal South. Northern Baptist, Southern Baptist. Northern Methodists, Southern Methodists. Northern Episcopalians, Southern Episcopalians. Churches divided over the issue of slaveholding. Both sides using the scripture to justify their practice. And so um, this became a holy war. And one of the things that tested the mettle of people during this time was how do we hold to our beliefs in this situation? The Wesleyan Methodists were non-resistant until the Civil War. And then they said, we're, we're, we need to help with this cause because emancipation of the slaves is so important and so the Method Wesleyan Methodists at the Civil War gave up their belief in non-resistance. Many of the Northern Quakers, young men, gave up their teaching of non-resistance so that they could fight in the war because they felt the causes were greater than scriptural principles. And so the Northern Quakers did much to work with emancipation but they compromised their beliefs in non-resistance at the time of the Civil War. Southern Quakers remained faithful, and the story of suffering among Southern Quakers is probably greater than the suffering of the Mennonites and the Brethren. Of course, in this community, um, the Quakers had left before the Civil War. Lynchburg was started by the Lynch family, who were Quaker. But uh, before the Civil War, they had moved on. And I believe you have the remains of their meeting house somewhere in Lynchburg, um, <clears throat> kind of a Presbyterian Quaker uh, meeting house there today. But this, by this time, the Quakers had left this community and had moved away. Quakers were very active in the Richmond area and somewhat in Virginia, northern Virginia. But uh, the bulk of the story that I have is the story of the Mennonite people. And while the Quaker story is interesting, and while the story of the Brethren people, in those days called the German Baptist Brethren, today Church of the Brethren, and while the stories intertwine, I, I want to focus primarily on the Mennonite and Amish story. So where did these people get their ideas that made them stand out? They took literally the understanding that there are two kingdoms. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from hence. Jesus said, But I say unto you, which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, 
Bless them that curse you and pray for them which despitefully use you. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. This comes from Romans. But rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Ye have heard it hath been said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, That ye resist not evil, But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, Turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, And take away thy coat, And let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, Go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. But if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not, even the, do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. <clears throat> These scriptural teachings were ingrained in our people. Never perfect, but ingrained as and the young people uh, somehow picked up that understanding that this is what God calls us to. The South, the North, and the West were three areas during the Civil War. And the Mennonites in each of the three areas were a little bit different. Northern Mennonites were kind of the odd among the odd, as one historian says. The odd among the odd. Um, they were Pennsylvania Dutch among with other Germans, and so they were different from the British that lived there in mostly eastern Pennsylvania, but their communities spread down into Maryland, out into western Pennsylvania. They were very much at home among the Reformed and Lutheran churches. They had come to Pennsylvania at William Penn's invitation and had settled there. They had come from Europe where they had been subjects, and now they were learning what it means to be a citizen. And we as Mennonites have struggled with that because we we still have a bit that Subject mentality. We hear it in Romans, let everyone be subject to the higher powers. But when it came to North America, we were suddenly citizens. And American citizens were expected to do their part to make this new country run smoothly. And Mennonites were finding their way. And I think as we talk through the Civil War, we people that were finding their way, and they had many crises of conscience, Crisis of conscience is a term that you'll probably hear me say again. They faced things and they had to decide, what will I do? What will I do? And some people had to make snap judgments. Snap judgments. (coughs) 
Mennonites were not eloquent in voicing their beliefs. The old country preachers preached very strongly from the Bible, but they were not known for their eloquence. Of course, people who come in to, and evaluate your congregation may, always, may not always be unbiased. For example, one awakened group uh, came to the Mennonite church and said, they're a sleepy bunch. They're a sleepy bunch. And so uh, they're, they're, they saw the Mennonites as a mission field. But Mennonites, as believers in Christ, encouraged their followers to follow the meek and lowly Jesus, the defenseless Jesus, the one who called his followers to love their enemies, to do good to those who mistreated them. Holmes had the Bible and the martyr's mirror, which held stories for them to follow. Non-resistance was clearly taught and lived in homes. In relation to state militia, you don't go. In relation to war, you don't go. In roles in lo local government, which use force, you don't participate. In fact, some of the early Mennonites even refused to put up no trespassing signs because they saw that as a, uh, a coercive thing. Their two kingdom beliefs that they got from Jesus led them to see that their primary loyalty was to the church of Jesus Christ. And while their country was calling them, their primary loyalty was to be given to him. The Mennonites did not see their duty as to change society. They saw that that was impossible for the general society to follow the teachings of Jesus. The Quakers and friends always, the Quakers tried to uh, change things. They were very involved in politics. The Quakers over around Richmond had their fingers in with the uh, high and mighty of Richmond. But the Anabaptists did not take an interest really in what was, the Mennonites did not take an interest in what was going on trying to change the general society. A second issue that played a very important part in our story is voluntary adult baptism. We call it believer's baptism. Conscience could not be forced. And unbaptized children did not always adhere to the wishes of parents in the church community. And so we have over and over again young men who had not made a commitment to Christ and the church uh, going into both the Union and Confederate Army. The deacon from Hildebrand Church in Augusta County had a son that was at Appomattox when the surrender was, uh, Gabriel Hildebrand. Family legend says that in, when Lee surrendered to Grant here at Appomattox, there was a young man from an Amish home uh, in the room. That's family story. But the next time you look at that picture, uh, don't try to figure out which one it is. Uh, one dear person said, well, maybe it was the one without a mustache. But I, 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 I think that if he had gone that far, that wouldn't have been an issue. But anyhow, the point is, uh, 
there were young men who made the decision to join both the Union and the Confederate armies, both from Mennonite and Amish homes. And it was a great burden. A family from Ohio, I have a, a note, uh, family letters that have survived. They had three of their family sons who went into the Civil War. The younger sister, she said it was sorrowful news, but um, it couldn't be helped because they had to save the country. That was her view. The mother wept bitterly day and night. The father said, I did not think that I was raising children to go to war. I am often overcome that I can't keep back the tears. So there were families who had sons. Let's see, part of it is this whole matter of not coercing until one is ready to make a mature decision. And unbaptized sons did not always adhere to the wishes of the parents or the church. And the Union and the Confederacy both targeted young men who were right at the age when they were deciding whether or not to follow Christ and receive baptism. Mennonites did not have a problem with doing something as an equivalency for exemption. They thought it was okay for the government to ask them to pay money in place of going into the military. And so before the Civil War, when the communities had their militia, when they got together four or five times a year to practice, it was mostly a community party, but they'd march around, uh, the Mennonites paid 50 cents or something and kept out of it. And they condemned rebellion, but refused to participate in war. Mennonites were struggling to find their place. Mennonites in the North were much more open to participating in the political world than Mennonites in other communities. Because they were the odd among the odd, they stuck to themselves and they tried to um, control the politics of their own community. The Mennonites of the North had a president and a secretary of war that were sympathetic toward their stand. And the legislators of the North worked hard so that there was exemption given to those who were conscientiously opposed to war. It almost worked as an embarrassment looking back today because the man who ensured that they received their exemption was Thaddeus Stevens, who was a radical Republican whose idea was to crush the South after the war. And unfortunately, he was kept in power uh, partly by the Mennonite vote because they were wanting to make sure that they had exemption. In the West, when I say the West, <clears throat> Mennonites were a little different. Mennonites and Amish were a little different. In the West, they had, when I say the West, I mean Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, that way. There was a growing conviction among Mennonite people that Christ is calling us 
to stay out of politics. In Pennsylvania, politics were kind of okay. But in the West, there was a growing conviction. It came slowly. That the answer to war was not going to the seat of power, but of going to the seat of power, which was Christ. From the West, there was books began to be written, two books that were written about non-resistance. That was a new thing for people to write books about non-resistance. Before that, people kind of just, it was preached in the church and lived in the home. But now there were some who were trying to articulate what it meant to be non-resistant Christians. And from the West, a rising voice was coming. John Brenneman, a very active bishop in the West, wrote a letter to Abraham Lincoln requesting exemption from the war, and then he never sent the letter. He said, who is this Abraham Lincoln but a dying mortal just as we are? Who is this Abraham Lincoln? If we lean on him, it may be leaning on a, a broken reed. Let's put our confidence in Christ. And in the West, there was a rising conviction which spread through the Mennonite church through the years and a, a um, and we have, a, we, we have that heritage today of being apolitical, staying out of the political realm. But that was just arising during that time. But it was the Virginia Mennonites who in a unique way experienced the wrath of the war that others did not. Partly because Virginia was where the bulk of the battles were fought. Virginia was very slow in leaving the Union. After the other Confederate states had formed, Virginia stayed out of the war for a number of months because they knew that if Virginia withdrew from the Union, most of the war would be fought in Virginia. And I think we know that from our history, that it was. The Mennonites in Virginia were a very small group, 350 to 400 families. The Brethren were a much larger group, and the two groups interacted because both groups were different. And they were both groups were different from the community. Both groups, Mennonites and Brethren, uh, forbade slavery. Already in 1837, the Mennonites of Virginia had switched to English and had translated their confession of faith. You think your confession of faith is thick. <laughs> okay, <laughs> this was their 1837 confession of faith. And uh, this is what Peter Burkholder said about slavery. But moreover, as all are free in Christ, they must take no part in slaveholding or in trafficking with them in any wise. Neither should any members exalt themselves above the others, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. And they stuck with their position against slavery. 
The Virginia Mennonites lived in a society where military honor was upheld, and they chose to remain as non-resistant Christians. The war came to them in a very real way. On one Sunday in June of 1861, Samuel Kaufman was preaching at the Weaver's Church west of Harrisburg, Harrisonburg. Who all was on the pulpit with him that day, we aren't told. Samuel had only been ordained a bishop for about one month. The seasoned bishop had died the year before, Martin Burkholder. And Samuel Kaufman was preaching that morning when the congregation heard uh, horses' hooves outside the meeting house. Samuel kept preaching, and in through the back door came two Confederate soldiers. One stood in the back, the other marched up and sat on the front bench. Can you imagine, those of you who are in the pulpit, where your audience went? Uh, <laughs> as he was pre preaching, and there, they, there he sat. The soldier in full Confederate regalia uh, was sitting there. Samuel finished his sermon and called for the closing hymn, as was the, was the uh, practice, and immediately the soldier got up and announced, he said, I want all men in this congress, all men between 18 and 45 are to report for military duty this week. And turned around and marched out. And that basically was how the, Congress, the Mennonites in the Shenandoah Valley had to make their decision, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Incidentally, all you men between 18 and 45 stand up. Okay. In your congregation, that would have been the ones who had to make, okay, you may sit down, but they're the ones who had to make a decision. Uh, basically overnight, what they were going to do. The church had not met beforehand and come up with, this is what we will do if this happens. It may be that they didn't have time. It, it, it probably was it was not the way they did things in those days. They just kind of went with the flow. Now, they had warning that things were going to get bad, because when Virginia withdrew from the Union, it was a 180-degree turn almost overnight. Virginia did not want to leave the Union, but when the decision came to leave was because Lincoln uh, called for troops from Virginia and other places and said, I want 75,000 troops. Virginia will provide troops. Virginia said we will not fight against fellow Southerners. And so Virginia, almost overnight, from going to being against the war, we're now for war. And the mood changed dramatically, just in a very short time. One of the things that reminds us is our communities are very fickle and feelings can change almost overnight. Those of you who 
remember the events of 9-11. And again, I'm realizing that many people are young enough that they, that was a, a vague ancient history. How fast the, the mood in the community changed. How fast the, uh, how fast people's uh, ideas changed. And suddenly you had the yellow ribbons and the flags everywhere in the community. Roberta, were you in on that bunch that put a flag on my front door? <laughs> Anyhow, that was one of the school jokes that they put a flag on Mr. Rank's front door. But anyhow, I took it down. Um, but the, uh, sorry, I, I tend to go down rabbit trails, so I'll try not to do that too much. But, but the, the mood changed. And then what was required was that Virginia had to ratify the fact that the state was going to leave the Union and everyone was supposed to go to the polls and express their opinion. Many of the Mennonites decided we'll not, we'll not go. There were a few of them that said, we think that it is our conscientious duty to go and voice our opposition to leaving the Union. Church leaders were exempt, but there was strong pressure for people to go to the polls and express their opinion. I always wondered why it was such a big deal until I discovered that you went and voted orally. You went to the polls and said, yes, I'm in favor of Virginia leaving the Union, or I am against it. In the voting precinct where I live at Mount Crawford, there were armed guards at the, uh, at the voting box. And in a few cases where someone came and voted no and left, they went after him, brought him back, and made him change his vote. This was, you know, United States. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, people, it was, you were monitored. The neighbors stood and listened to how you voted. And so the people were re realizing that the mood had changed. And so almost overnight, the feelings in Virginia changed and the Mennonite and Brethren people were people who were suspicious, suspicioned, suspicioned. And so the men went home from church that day and had to make a decision. And whether we agree with what they decided or not, many of them agreed that we will go into the Confederate, the Virginia Army at this point, into the Virginia Army, but we will not shoot. We will not shoot. And the stories uh, are told over and over again of young men who did that. Now, when we have that wrap-up session uh, tomorrow afternoon, we can, we can discuss whether that was right or not, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave that till then. Some of the young men, and if you count 45 as young men, but they, on their way to Harrisonburg, they stopped by Bishop Samuel Kaufman and told him, we will not shoot. There were others who made promises to their mothers, to their wives, we will not shoot. <clears throat> 
Michael Shank, whose farm is right next to the Pike Church, he didn't show up, so they came and got him. I am pretty sure he's the one that they put on the horse and he promptly fell off. So they loaded him up in a wagon and took him to Winchester. He was not going to cooperate. But many of them at least went off to the, uh, went off to the uh, place where they were told to go. Christian Good, young man from Molehill. Those of you who know Rockingham County know that Molehill is an extinct volcano and a prominent landmark in Rockingham County. Christian Good told his mother, I will not shoot. And I don't know all the things that went on in their training and so forth, but the first time that he was in a battle situation, the captain came and said, I notice you're not shooting. You better shoot. And moved on. The second time he was in battle, the captain came again and said, I notice you are not shooting. Christian Good said, I don't see anything to shoot at. The captain said, well, don't you see those Yankees over there? And Christian said, yeah, but they're people and we don't shoot people. And his testimony and the testimonies of the others, the young men, the young Mennonite men, uh, got the reputation of the, the uh, soldiers whose guns were out of order. And they refused to shoot. They gathered in the evenings in the army camps and sang hymns together. One of the hymns that they were known for singing was, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? I'm sure their Methodist and Baptist friends were familiar with that hymn, but these young men had a different meaning to that song, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? Stonewall Jackson, who was in charge of all these men, wrote a letter and he said, there are hundreds of these young men, apparently from the Mennonites and Brethren community, who are very respectful and they are very obedient, but we can't get them to shoot. And maybe we should come up with something else, alternatives. Maybe they should take care of horses. Maybe they should be driving wagons and so forth. And he proposed that there be companies of young men who would do that. Some of them did. But there was increasing uh, struggles of conscience because more and more of these young men would leave the horses and wagons standing and disappear. Young men who were sent home to plant crops and things and disappeared and did not go back. Court-martial was to be the fate of those who deserted and court-martial could lead to death. We have no record of any of the young men, Mennonite or brethren young men, who were, did face death because of that. Even though their decision looks strange to us, uh, God was there protecting and guiding. And so they had a crisis of conscience and had to decide what they're going to do. And I think we'll start with that tomorrow. What did they do?